This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. Lion, Notes for a Play in One Act by Matt Libell, and Skeleton by Lily Gray. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore, in affiliation with Amazon. There you can purchase the book, A Peculiar Feeling of Restlessness, featuring Bound Off contributors Elizabeth Allen, Kathy Fish, and Claudia Smith. Lion, notes for a play in one act, written and read by Matt Libell. Listening time, 4 minutes, 47 seconds. Lion, notes for a play in one act, by Matt Libell. Synopsis. It's about two characters, one very sure and confident in his own identity, the other sadly and poignantly confused about his identity. The first character is a fully grown, healthy, and happy 600-pound male lion. The second character is a man dressed up in a full-body terry cloth lion suit, who, for most of the play, fully believes that he is an actual lion. During the course of the play, the lion spends a great deal of time attempting to convince the guy dressed up in the lion suit that he, i.e., the guy dressed up in the lion suit, is not, in fact, a lion. In order to further this argument, the lion presents to the guy dressed up in a lion suit a good deal of empirical evidence to this effect. The guy in the lion suit refuses to accept these arguments altogether, at one point resorting to plugging his ears and roaring loudly and quite unconvincingly. The lion, in a stage whisper, quite damningly derides the man in the lion suit's roaring ability. Finally, after a series of gradually revelatory moments, capped off by a moving soliloquy, the guy in the lion suit realizes that he is not, in fact, a lion. Immediately therewith, he makes a desperate emotional appeal to the lion, whom he now realizes is the only lion on stage, not to eat him. The lion, in the end, unable to tolerate stupidity, and, to be quite frank, after two hours of onstage pontificating, mighty hungry, refuses to comply with the broken man's wishes, and ends up eating every part of the man's flesh, including the terry cloth lion suit, which, in addition to striking the lion as vaguely cannibalistic, ends up giving the lion a tummy ache like nobody's business. A tummy ache, which is the final image the audience sees before curtain. A note on casting. Suggested casting is as follows. The part of the man in the lion suit should be played by an actual lion, a 600-pound adult male of the Bill Ashaka pride, fully trained, preferably Juilliard, though any of the major schools will suffice. Throughout the play, the actor should speak with a rather affected British accent. When called upon to roar, the actor should roar with all the intensity and volume of an actual lion. The role of the lion should be played by a man, preferably slight of build and clean-shaven, frankly, as hairless as possible. 
the man should not, in the course of the play, wear a lion suit. Rather, he should wear an ordinary three-piece suit, nothing too conservative, nothing too avant-garde, and carry a rather worn leather briefcase overflowing with papers. When called upon to roar, the man-actor should make little effort to sound like a lion. In fact, he should put little effort into the gesture at all. Instead, he should simply utter the word roar in what for humans would be a normal tone of voice, if not, in fact, a kind of overtly apathetic mumbling. The Venue This play should be staged on or around the 50-yard line of Ford Field in Detroit, Michigan, home of the Detroit Lions football team. Aside from the Lions briefcase and the normal yard markers, there need not be any props. However, a partially decomposed warthog carcass may be added stage left at director's discretion. The audience. The audience, which ideally should fill the stadium, capacity 70,000, should be equally divided between humans and lions. At the end of the production, audience members will be randomly paired up into discussion groups of two, one human, one lion. They will be asked to discuss the following questions. One, do you believe that identity is a fixed or fluid concept? Has the play changed your feelings about this? And if so, how? Two, do you think question one above telegraphs the theme of this piece too overtly? And if so, how? Three, have your feelings about warthogs been altered at all in the last two hours? And if so, how? As a kid, Matt Libell dreamed of a career in lion taming. He now considers writing fiction excitement enough. His recent work appears in Quarterly West, Opium, and Diagram. Skeleton, written by Lily Gray, read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, 9 minutes, 20 seconds. The last time I came home, I found a bone in my backyard. It's about as long as my forearm, with rough, sandpapery knobs on each end. The white color it is supposed to be has faded somewhat, so now the bone is yellowy-brown with a purple-green tinge in certain lights. It was not buried, but merely reclining beneath the black walnut tree we used as a stanchion for our clothesline. That's what I was supposed to be doing, taking down dry shirts and tea towels, but instead I looked down and found a bone stuck to the mud moss between the tree's upraised roots. I suppose the purple-green is mold, and the brown slickness is old sinew or dried blood, but I feel separate from the disgust I might experience if I had found a bone anywhere else. A bone in my yard belongs, but a bone in the street I would step over. I put it on a flat rock by the driveway, hoping it would be bleached clean by direct light and fresh air. So far, it is still the color of musk in dark places. It is resisting my efforts to turn into a presentable oddity. I can respect that, but other people cannot appreciate the bone without a certain amount of expectation in its appearance. I don't know where the bone should be. It could be resting inside a hound, nestled in between red muscles in a doe, or even holding straight the wrist of some girl. 
but instead it is here now, dead and unused. I feel like that is a waste. It must say something about me or my personality to identify the decomposed element of a body as the best part of my return home. But there was very little to return to. My father took a second wife while I was away, and it seemed as though every letter I got detailed how their relationship was already capsizing. Our roof fell when my mother died, the timbers holding the ceiling aloft rotting and breaking in the night with secretive rumbles and groans. It was on the west end of the house, so we all moved east and pretended to sleep better, lying on our backs with our eyes fixed on the ceiling. Now other parts of the house are failing, starting with the master bedroom and moving like a disease, gangrene in architecture. A long time ago, before I left, I found an eyeball out on the porch, large, milk-white, human-sized. The ocular nerve was still attached, a pathetic string that had shriveled into curly loops. It was severed a few inches behind the eyeball, which was oozing slightly. Parts of the iris had ruptured and dried, but the bottom was still liquid and leaking into the pupil and the wood of the porch. I almost stepped on it, and then I recognized what it was. My mother was with me. She had intended to sweep the steps, but she dropped the broom and ran back inside, a hand clasped over her own eye in horror. I got sick over the side railing and then knelt down to get a closer look. It lay there for a full day before my mother made my father toss it into the weeds. The spectacle of an eyeball sitting outside our French doors was appealing to me, perhaps because I did not mediate on which eye socket it had once called home. Bones are again the exception to inquiry. Whatever owned a bone must be thoroughly dead, but a dislocated eyeball falls into a deeply disturbing gray area. The bones we are used to by now, but other body parts are disconcerting and I hope we never find any others. What was once acute eccentricity is slowly becoming a plague that even I worry about. When you actually go out looking for bones, you can't find any. Determination or specificity makes them shy. They roll into ditches, shelter beneath felled limbs, and merge with living bodies to avoid you. If you turn quickly, you can find rib bones, the slowest of all body parts, stuck in the open and protruding from meager dirt mounds like little masts. I am used to their tricks by now, after a year of listening for them rolling and crumbling beneath skin, lifting and grinding. I can find femurs and finger bones and the clump knock knuckle bones my father collects to shake at his second wife. For lack of any sacred instrument, he puts them in a chipped coffee mug and rattles them over her stomach. She is expecting a child. My father is not rattling for anything specific. Some people might say this is strange, but in the gloom of our house, half empty with the roof falling in, it looks sweet to me. Desperate, but sweet like the incense priests swing as they walk up the aisles at confirmation. I can't deny them these strange rituals, when bones and body parts are appearing so rapidly you would think we cultivated them, as if I had sown teeth in our garden and was now reaping a harvest fit for corpses. The wife puts up with my father's dedicated socket rattling because she wants a baby, a distraction. I don't know how long this distraction can survive in a place where pieces of people last longer than their owners. The second wife wants to move. Who can blame her? My father told me that as each wall ruptured inside the house, so did a wall of his new wife's heart. But he has a poetic inclination, 
and she does not seem heartbroken to me, only disappointed and annoyed with all the extraneous body elements that are also a tripping hazard. My mother died here, and my father is torn between keeping her close and pleasing her newer version. He did not leave the house for months after she died, and cried so often I had to stuff bedding in the crack under my door so I would not hear him at night. He was a sorry sight, refusing all help, and wallowing in mournful excess, burning her pictures and then grabbing them from the fire, screaming when he singed his hands. I cannot blame our neighbors and our relatives for giving up on him. I have no excuse besides the horror of knowing everything and my life would now be divided into when your mother was still alive and after your mother died. I went traveling and he found another wife with long black hair. She desperately tried to buck her status as the replacement, but after a time, when it became clear someone would always be finding bones around the house, she settled into another skin and her voice faded. The second wife is not interested in me, since I am now a minor annoyance, like covering the roses for the first frost, a problem that would visit once every year and then disappear. I don't tell her or my father where I go when I leave, and they have never asked. What can I tell them? Nowhere else seems as real or as substantial, and this ridiculous sentiment blurs all other locations and jobs and people into easily forgotten pabulum. The new wife might understand. Moving would make her life simpler, since I would have to stay with my mother and the house. We never speak, and even though my father is more blatant about his attachment, I think she has realized that there is only one place I can return to, even if only a skeleton remains. I've tried hating her, and she does have pinched eyes and protruding teeth, but I sympathize too much to form a solid grudge. Besides, I doubt anyone will travel far from here in any permanent way, since someone seems to be tipping coffins on our lawn. This trip home, I stayed for quite a while. With no job and no money, I had nowhere else to sleep. In a single week, I found the bone beneath the black walnut, which might be called an ulna, a chipped scapula, a fox mandible, the sternum of a rabbit or weasel, claws from what may be a badger, and a thin toothpick bone that I think came from a bird. I laid them all out on the driveway and tried to construct something that could shamble around and feed with its tiny jaw and oversized molars. I do like puzzles, and I do not accept missing pieces. I am waiting to find a skull. I am not sure what this will prove or what it means, but I know eventually there will be a grinning skull on the driveway with all the other discards I have collected over the years, slowly adding up to a human being or a big mammal, maybe a bear. There are many things I do not understand, and with the ground crunching under my feet with every step I take, I find myself analyzing every moment and every event that could add up to something concrete. I am still a person like everyone else, someone who has to learn how to look for certain clues, elusive like bones and permanent like death. The End Lily Gray is a student at Hollands University. She believes radio dramas should be revived and hopes to find employment writing for comic books.
Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>